it should be possible for any developer out there uh, in any company, at Maersk, at AJ Bueller, any of the companies we work with, to be able to become an AI developer. Okay. Uh, because un unless and until we achieve that, at least for Microsoft's business model and our identity, just saying I have speech recognition that's world record breaking is no good. I've never had a repeat guest on Fort Knox in the year and a half I've been doing this. That's not because there's a rule against it, I just never had a compelling reason to. That changes this week. I'm John Fort from CNBC, and you're listening to the Fort Knox Podcast, Rich Ideas and Powerful People. I do this weekly, bringing you the highest achievers. We're going to learn how the very best climb to the top and pull out lessons along the way. If that sounds good to you, make this a habit. Apple's podcast app is the most popular way to tune in. There are all kinds of ways. Mainly just go ahead and subscribe. The internet can do the work for you. A few days ago, I flew out to Seattle and then went up to Microsoft's headquarters in Redmond, Washington, and sat down with CEO Satya Nadella. Satya was my guest in October when his book Hit Refresh came out, and it was a big deal because Nadella has dramatically changed the perception and trajectory of one of the world's most iconic companies, and most people had no clue who he is. Hit Refresh was his big moment of public definition, both for his vision for Microsoft and for himself as a leader. Satya wasn't new to me, though. We first met about seven years ago, before he was CEO, on one of his trips to Silicon Valley. I was CNBC's tech correspondent. He was in charge of Microsoft's server and tools division, which at the time, most people outside of the tech industry thought was a boring backwater. The bright spotlight was on phones, PCs, Xbox, even search. Little did the masses know that the future was in cloud, and Satya Nadella's division would keep Microsoft relevant. So, fast forward to today, May 2018. Microsoft has its Build Developer Conference in Seattle, and Satya took some time ahead of it to talk about his vision for the company's platforms, his chief rivals in the cloud, Amazon and Google, his views on data privacy after Facebook's Cambridge Analytica scandal, and his view on U.S. trade tensions with China, among other things. Uh, a quick correction here. When I'm ribbing him in the beginning about his book tour, I say he was in better homes and gardens. Uh, it was actually good housekeeping. Go figure. Here's Satya Nadella. I think it's been seven years or so since we first sat down. That's right. And um, I guess uh, that was before I was CEO. That's yes, right. Yes, before yes. you were CEO. That's right. We go way back. That's now. right. And, uh, and you're famous now. You're, yeah. I mean, what you happened? wrote a book. Oh. I think I saw you in Better Homes and Gardens, even. Right. Not just the. Um, I've never seen, that I can recall, an executive go from who's he to, no, this guy <laughs> knows what's going on and he is at the center of the zeitgeist quite the way I've seen you do it. Uh, is it weird? <laughs> if you say so. I mean, I, I don't find any difference, but, you know, it's been, it's been a fantastic ride. I mean, I think what's been humbling for me is I, I don't get confused. This is all because of the platform I've been given, which is it's Microsoft and the work we do. Uh, it's not me, uh, but it's the opportunity I've been given. At, at what point do you say, and I know this isn't a turnaround, this is hitting refresh, and there's still work to do, as you said in the book, but Microsoft stock is near all-time highs in the mid-90s uh, recently. At what point can you say, yeah, we've, we've got that part behind us, the turnaround or the refresh or whatever you want to call it. There's still more to do, but yeah, good job, team. Now it's time to take the next hill. 
I mean, I think that's the fundamental posture uh, that we have to have. And quite frankly, any company that needs to continue to renew itself needs to have. Because if you think about it, the what's going to happen next and the day after is what uh, you have to anticipate. Uh, so what has happened in the past is just the past. Um, is phase one done? Can you kind of say, hey, I've been CEO for four-ish years now, and yeah, we, we got that part done. Pretty good job. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, to me, it is very important to start with two things. A very clear sense of purpose and identity, and a clear understanding of how to express that sense of purpose and identity in a changing world. So I feel like in the, whatever, the last four and a half years, we were able to do a good job of that. But I tell you, I only think of what are we going to do next? Uh, because that sense of purpose will have to remain constant. And our culture that allows us uh, to move forward has to remain constant. But there's going to be a lot of churn about, hey, the world's going to change and we will have to change with it, and in fact, ahead of it. Speaking of a sense of purpose, you said something interesting recently. You said, that's what I want my legacy to be, that anyone who joins our company is able to connect their personal passion and use Microsoft as a platform to realize it. What's your personal passion? It's a great question. In fact, the way I got to this was, um, I used to work for a gentleman uh, by the name of Doug Burgum, who's actually the governor of North Dakota now. He had said this to me, I was probably in my mid-30s. He says, wow, we spend a f far too much time at work for it not to have meaning. Um, and that's when I said, why am I at Microsoft? What is it that gives me the energy at Microsoft day in and day after? And it is mostly because uh, of the platform it creates for me to be able to connect with what I'm passionate about. Take accessibility. It's something that I personally am super passionate about. But Microsoft's given me an amazing opportunity to be able to take that passion, connect it to real work, and see its impact in the world. And I think that's true for the 100,000 people here. It's the lo local communities, the countries we work in, the sectors of the economy, education, health. That broad spectrum of uh, impact that Microsoft has is the opportunity that it creates for every one of our employees. But what defines me, I think, is curiosity, love of ideas, and the ability to translate that uh, into impact. Some of that that you just shared about accessibility is a good segue into Build and some of the announcements that you're making at the developer conference. Um, I, I was looking at what you said four years ago when we sat down here in Redmond about why Microsoft is leading with mobile and cloud, and it, it sounds exactly right um, in terms of what is important in the space. Do the same for me, if you will, with artificial intelligence. What are the necessary ingredients for a company to excel in AI, uh, be a mega-scale player? Yeah. How many mega-scale players are there going to be, and why is it essential? Yeah, so let me, first of all, the world that we're uh, entering, and in fact, it's, we're in the midst of this massive transformation, is what I describe as an intelligent cloud and an intelligent edge. I mean, think about it, right? The computing fabric is getting more distributed and more ubiquitous. You have now more computing power. Take GPU power in a car than perhaps even in a data center a few years ago. 
you have a microcontroller with this Azure Sphere uh, that we just recently announced. Every microcontroller out there in your fridge or in uh, any drill or is going to have compute power. Uh, every factory is going to have millions and millions of sensors. And your neighbor put, Amazon is buying intelligent doorbells. That's right. Video so cameras, cameras in faces. Fact, that's right. In fact, one of the announcements at Build is going to be a Qualcomm camera that's capable of running uh, an image classifier and a container. So that means in the wild, you can start recognizing objects. Or a DJI drone, in fact, uh, that's going to be capable of running again the Azure Edge so that it can detect any faults in an oil pipeline. So computing is becoming ubiquitous. And that means data is getting generated in large amounts. And so once you have that, then what you do is you do AI on it, which is you reason over large amounts of data using all this compute power to give yourself in whatever app, in whatever field, that predictive power, that analytical power, uh, that capability to automate things. Uh, so do you have to be a mega scale player in either cloud infrastructure or in data to really be able to play in that then? I think that in our business, there is absolutely scale. I mean, if you think about Azure, we have 50 data centers, more than anybody else in terms of regions, actually, mm -hmm. data center regions. Uh, we also have the capability of putting Azure Stack wherever you want it. We have the ability to even embed this things like Azure Sphere. So yes, you have to have some scale uh, around the capability, whether it's the AI capability or the cloud capability. But I sort of view it as this next phase is not about celebrating just the mega scale players. It's who can really translate their scale into mass impact in where every business is becoming an AI business. Because I feel like we're in this phase still of celebrating AI breakthroughs. I, mean, I do that myself too. If you think about it, Microsoft, I'm so proud of our achievements in human parody in speech or object recognition or machine reading and comprehension. These are big breakthroughs. But to me, what is going to define our business success is going to be our ability to translate that into a set of platforms and tools that are actually commoditized. I mean, this is the funny part. Commoditized. It should be, that means it should be possible for any developer out there uh, in any company, at Musk, at AJ Bueller, any of the companies we work with, to be able to become an AI developer. Okay. Uh, because un unless and until we achieve that, at least for Microsoft's business model and our identity, just saying I have speech recognition that's world record breaking is no good. I've got to give it to Xiaomi so that they can, for every Chinese traveler, build a machine translation device or a speech translation device. That's breakthrough, and that's what we are focused on. So at another developer conference back in the fall, uh, Amazon's, they also were unveiling some AI-related tools and a camera connected to that. Are we going to end up with these developer tools around artificial intelligence with walled gardens? In fact, if you look at the Amazon uh, and us, uh, if there's one common ground we have between uh, us is that uh, we believe in our personal digital assistants, whether it's Alexa and Cortana, uh, in fact, working with each other. This is speaking to your walled gardens uh, point, which is I think that sometimes uh, walled garden strategies can work for some of the time, but not all of the time. Uh, I think at least in our case, when it comes to Azure, we are building it out as an open ecosystem. Uh, a distributed ecosystem uh, that addresses the world's needs, uh, and we'll have strong competition. Uh, but and and we'll uh, in some sense there will be some scale players that we'll always be competing in. I'm not a believer in all these winner-take-all type of dynamics. I feel like you know you have to sort of compete each day uh, to make progress. 
I want to talk to you about data ethics because I know that's something that, that's going to be a theme at Build as well. Have you considered rethinking Microsoft's business model around data? I mean, th there's been this idea in the industry that in exchange for free services, you basically allow certain companies to follow you around digitally. Yes, you have the opportunity to opt out using certain browsers or certain browser settings, mm -hmm. but generally speaking, the trade-off is you get to use this for free, we get to follow and target. Is there the possibility that that bargain's not gonna work anymore? I mean, it's a great question. In fact, if anything, I feel at Microsoft, we've done a lot to make sure that our business model is fundamentally aligned with our customers and their preference. Uh, what I mean by that is we do have some ad-supported businesses, but we have subscriptions, mm -hmm. uh, whether it's for individuals or for organizations. And the predominant business model at this company is all about making sure that the data and any surplus that gets created out of data, like AI, is to benefit the user, not us. So we want to be a pure software company that through subscriptions helps every organization and every individual get more out of their data, more out of their time. That to me, I think, is going where the world is going. Mm -hmm. uh, I think people are going to put more value on their data. Uh, even individual consumers are going to wake up to the fact that there's nothing free. Uh, and so it's a choice. It's not to say that there isn't room for someone to say, yeah, this is a good trade where I'm using a free service in exchange for some data, but there's nothing free about it. So is there a plan B for Bing, for Outlook.com, et cetera, that says, you know what? If we get to the point where tracking is something that there's a backlash against, we have a plan for that. Absolutely. I mean, in fact, in a lot of these things, in search in particular, we have taken great pains that it's only ads that are driven on intent, uh, which is part of the results page. We don't take that data, use it elsewhere. We don't have any uh, targeting business that is at large. Uh, we are very, very conscious of those choices that we have made in terms of making sure that the products that we create uh, are all about users' interests as the first and foremost. Mm. On cloud, uh, you said when we sat down four years ago, if you're not already spending a lot of capital on the order of four or five billion dollars each year, which just to grow your, which is increased, <laughs> it doesn't go down, right? Probably it's a little too late to enter the market. You went on to say there are at least two players like that, Amazon and Google in particular, but we are one of the three in that category. Update me, how does the competitive field look? Is it still the three? Uh, would you tweak your definition of, of what it takes to really be? It's a good question. I mean, you know, the capital investment is one part of it. Uh, and clearly, I think uh, Amazon and us, uh, when it comes to broad cloud platform, are number one and number two. And, uh, and that game's on, and each quarter you all track us on that progress. Uh, and Google's also uh, in there and, uh, you know, obviously have a lot of money and a lot of capital uh, and are investing a ton. Uh, but Two I think, billion rate, I think they recently announced. They're starting to show some numbers. And so to me, what I think is going to be important here is um, increasingly trust. What I mean by that is just like it's not just about capital. Uh, let's say amongst the three of us, who is most, if you think about, you know, talking to a CEO of an industrial company, a CEO of a healthcare company, a financial services company, a grocery I, company. Yeah, grocery company. Good example. <laughs> uh, I think it's going to come down uh, to trust. Tr 
trust not just in the technology, the ethics around AI, privacy, security, all that also matters. Trust in business model, uh, where that alignment of your interests as a customer and the interests of the provider are fully aligned. I sort of say one of the currencies is what do you think, what do you say, and what do you do are got to be in alignment. Now, I'm if reading you, between the lines here. I hear stories about retailers coming to Microsoft, uh, maybe even grocery, coming to Microsoft because, hey, Amazon's all in grocery now with, with Whole Foods. Uh, retailers are looking over their shoulder wondering, Amazon's got a good platform, but at the same time, are they going to come at the core of my business model? Yeah, it's not even just Amazon, by the way. You've got to remember, Amazon and Google both are fantastic at being able to wig transactions. <laughs> uh, you know, so it's not that you know, Google uh, is somehow more friendly to retailers. They have a nice two-sided market that they can subsidize one to advantage other. And also, by the way, the advertising business is just so funky, which is it's sort of second-priced auction. I've never seen business models where there's more demand, there is higher prices. So I feel like, wow, any customer who is essentially subsidizing their own tax increase should think through exactly how that's going to work out in the long run. So that's where I feel like long run business model trust is going to be so important. How do you structure your workforce to, I guess, best embrace uh, that interest in trust? that the customer has? Is there a different approach in sales, in messaging? What are you telling people I think it's a, it, in fact, that's where you, getting every part of your organization aligned, starting with your sense of purpose and mission. That's why when I say we want to empower people and organizations all over the planet to achieve more, it's got to be more than a set of words. Like our success is based on our customer success. Second is then create that business model. Like take subscriptions. If you don't use it, they will churn out. Uh, that means you only get paid when they're using it and driving value. Consumption business model. So getting fully aligned on the business model. And then shaping the culture, whether it's the person in the field. We now have these new roles in the field called customer success. Uh, that's all about making sure that the customers are able to do what they want to do with technology to impact their business. Uh, hmm. And to me, that type of transformation end-to-end -end, and consistency. It can't be like, oh, I'm doing something here, but something else somewhere else. How do you compensate customer success? Uh, just by, uh, you know, how customers are rating you. NPS uh, is a good one. Net promoter uh, scores. Net promoter scores is a good one. Uh, are they consuming? Uh, for example, are they, have they activated all the capabilities? So we mm -hmm. have a, what we describe as leading indicators uh, of success of our customers. And in fact, compensate our folks, not on revenue, not on margin, but on those metrics. Interesting. Um, I think we've already established you were right about a lot of things over the past four plus years. Uh, what were you wrong about? I think the thing that has caught me um, most by surprise is how multi-constituent, uh, even when I started out four years ago, I thought I understood, uh, oh, of course it's about customers, yeah, it's about our employees, it's about uh, our shareholders. But it's not just that. Um, it is about recognizing that in every community that we operate in and serve, there is multiple constituents that all have to be in harmony with your interests. Hmm. Uh, you know, and that is probably the place where I've learned a lot. Uh, Starbucks just got a lesson in that, if I'm reading you the right way. Somebody who's 
in your store, you've made a certain brand promise, they haven't bought anything necessarily, but they can have a big impact on the perception of your brand. Yeah, I'm, I, by the way, I'm on the board of Starbucks, and uh, I mean, I think that uh, Starbucks and Kevin and team responded, uh, you know, to something that was a brand promise and what the, the expectation was very well. And I feel like they've set the bar, in fact, uh, of how it's not about sort of being perfect. It's about being able to learn from things that happen and to be able to improve and change the culture of your organization. That's what we're doing as well. So what drove that home for you? You said that was a, an area that caught you off guard a bit. I'm sorry, what is that? You said that was an area that caught you off guard a bit, the multi-constituent yeah. nature. Yeah, I mean, it's just the, the, the ability as a CEO to be able to recognize. Was there a moment where you realized, boy, this is... Yeah, I'll tell you, in fact, one of my biggest moments was we got a letter probably my first year in uh, from the uh, Association of the Blind in the United States about saying, hey, look, you guys have to take software... Uh, work you do uh, um, very seriously for accessibility, especially for people with visual impairment. Uh, and I've always, in fact, championed, long before I was CEO, uh, I used to be uh, the one who internally championed our accessibility work. But that's when I, it struck me is, it, this is, can't be a checkbox. This requires us to integrate into the mainstream. And it, you know, the universal design needs to become something that is much more culturally ingrained in everything we do. And it's been a phenomenal. I mean, to me, some of the most exciting impact of AI, whether it's gaze technology and what it can do for someone with ALS, uh, or some machine reading technology and what it can do with someone with dyslexia, that's now been an awakening for us. Uh, and that's when it caught me in saying that, you know, that particular advocacy group sending me a letter uh, was a bit of a wake-up call for me to sort of recognize that we will only be a company that we, you know, want to be if we take all constituents and but yet approach with that universality in our products. I think you can expect some more letters from advocacy groups now. <laughs> what, what do you have new around uh, that specifically accessibility at, at Build? Yeah, so one of the things that we did uh, last year was something called uh, AI for Earth. The idea is not just build technology uh, and advances in AI, but to use it uh, to fund organizations, research uh, that are going to really turn, in that case, AI for things like tackling climate change or creating an early warning system for Zika or what have you. And so we're now going to take that same approach for AI for accessibility. So we are putting a $25 million grant, uh, which is going to be available uh, to research institutions uh, and other nonprofits to be able to take advantage of and use AI tech to solve some of the accessibility challenges out there. I think the last time I sat down with you, Jeff Immelt was next to you. And you were talking about ways that uh, Azure and Predix, uh, GE's um, platform for, for industrial software are gonna work together. GE is announcing that they're cutting their digital unit by more than 25% this year, but the industrial internet moves on. Are you going to do anything within Microsoft to pick up the slack for what companies like GE might cut back, different partnerships? In fact, we just were coming back from Hanover, uh, where the biggest industrial conference uh, happened. And it's stunning to see, you know, Microsoft would go to Hanover in the past. Uh, it, you know, we had an embedded business. But this has now become a main show for us. If you look at the number of announcements coming out with this fundamental fact that Azure 
along with Azure Edge, is becoming built into every modern factory. I mean, one of the things I even talked about in our earnings uh, last quarter was uh, Toyota material handling. Literally, they're taking uh, the material handling in um, a particular modern factory that they're building, a digital factory, using drones to fly through to optimize the pallet routing um, and optimize the entire supply chain efficiency. Or Bueller, in fact, that's another uh, company, but in, most of the corn in the world goes through their machines. And it turns out that if you really want to protect the food production of the world uh, as, as it relates to corn, you want to detect any toxin early on. They're using computer vision at the edge uh, to be able to, in their uh, you know, uh, machines. Already. Already, and we're working with them. So to me, being able to sort of translate what I think of as our AI promise or our cloud and its edge into these industrial applications, those are the killer apps. That's what I celebrate. <laughs> uh, closer to home, there's this tension between big tech and the communities around big tech. Uh, not just in Seattle area, also seen it in, in Silicon Valley in particular. But in Seattle right now, Seattle proper, there's this proposal for a head tax. Basically, I think it's uh, $500 for uh, every worker, um, just for big companies and to pay for homeless services. My gut says this isn't really so much about homeless services as perhaps it's this tension between, boy, these big tech companies are raising the standard, making it more expensive, gentrifying. It's good for some people, but not good for everybody. We need them to give something back. Is that your view on what this is really about? And what does a company like Microsoft, any big tech company, do to perhaps better this, change the narrative, move, move the debate forward? I mean, it's, it's, it's the right dialogue for us to have, first of all, because in some sense, I've always believed uh, that if just a few multinational companies are the only companies uh, that are getting bigger and more profitable and then the rest of the economy uh, is not showing the same vibrancy and employing uh, people and in general inequality increases in society, that's not stable. That's not stable for any liberal democracy. So is uh, the tax a good idea? Is it the answer? I don't know whether that particular tax is a good idea because you've got to make sure, basically, because all taxes uh, you know, can create unintended consequences for economic growth. Uh, so you've got to think it through. It's a system. Uh, but that said, though, should every community think about how to make sure that the people in the community across all parts of the economic strata are able to live there, thrive there? Uh, absolutely. If there is what you call gentrification uh, and the housing expenses are just going up, uh, that's no solution. Uh, we, our own employees will not want to live in a non-diverse community over time. So we will have to have responsibility, quite frankly, in every community, not just in Seattle, not just in Redmond, uh, but in every country we operate in. That's why I think as a multinational company, I, I, every time I go into any capital or any city uh, or any uh, community inside the United States, I always ask myself, how many people around Microsoft, how many partners, who do they employ, what are their median salaries? What is the opportunity? Without that, I don't think Microsoft continues to thrive. But what, what do you do differently to get a different result? I remember 15 years ago living in Silicon Valley, sitting down, having this conversation with the Silicon Valley leadership group. Boy, it's really expensive. It's hard to recruit workers into Silicon Valley. But housing prices there are up at least 
2.5x since then. Yeah, no, I think on this particular one, there are some solutions. I think we should, first of all, collect the data uh, that sh and say, wow, there is ways to create low, you know, I would say low-cost housing uh, and accessibility uh, to low-cost housing in these urban centers uh, so that we don't have just runaway costs of housing. Uh, I think some of these things, whether it's runaway costs of our healthcare, runaway costs of our education, or runaway costs of housing, uh, these are challenges uh, that I think have to be, uh, and, and, and market forces should work to solve those problems. There's a U.S. trade delegation in China right now trying to work some things out. What's the best case scenario out of that as far as what gets brought back? Uh, here's my simple view. I think about the next 10 years, next 20 years, next 30 years, how many, whatever your time horizon is going to be defined by these two countries, uh, China and the United States, creating more interdependence, not less. Uh, that's what's going to be good for the two countries. That's what's going to be good for the world. So my hope is that any dialogue that happens in any capital, uh, in any venue, is all about sort of breaking through. Uh, I think there are legitimate issues uh, that need to be discussed, uh, but you need to come up with solutions because interdependence uh, is probably good uh, for economic growth uh, and stability of the, of the world. Any third rails you see? Um, when you say third rail, what do you mean? Um, things that they shouldn't touch mm. or push or... I think that anything that sort of creates uh, just uncertainty uh, it's just not good. Uh, whom does it serve? Uh, I think that the more we recognize uh, that it's true that globalization or free trade as it was conceived has not created uh, equitable growth uh, in all parts. Like That's the issue that I think is being debated. Uh, so that means you've got to go back, though, uh, to the real principles of free trade and make sure that they are, in fact, implemented fairly. I want to talk about something that we've talked about before, which is uh, gender diversity, women at Microsoft. About a month ago, the Seattle Times did a big story on Microsoft's culture. It said, the culture is still male dominant, there's casual sexism, and change comes slowly. Did you think it was fair? I think that you know, this is an issue that is front and center for me and for my leadership team. Because in some sense, yes, change happens slowly, uh, but we have to push every day. Uh, and make progress every day. And that's what I have to hold myself accountable. In fact, and it starts with culture. Uh, when I think about the amount of time I and my leadership team now spend on making sure that we have that everyday inclusive culture. Uh, in every meeting, we are able to make sure that the people, the diverse group we have, gender, ethnic, are all able to participate. So I think it starts with culture and taking it as first class. Second, it just cannot be uh, just words. It also has to be a set of metrics. So for example, my own compensation uh, is, and my leadership team's compensation is now tied to a set of metrics where we have to make progress year over year. So I think you've got to go to work on this, whether it's on the culture or the metrics that really promote diversity and inclusion. And it's the right thing for us to focus on and is not be a, satisfied with whatever we have. Is that a new thing on tying compensation to diversity metrics? I remember you know, Brian Krasanich at Intel is, is doing something where by job category, he wants you know, the target to be let's reach the available population according to the Bureau of Labor Statistics. So if um, electrical engineers are 
35% women, then that's our target. Not 50-50, but 35% because that's... A, that used to be called quotas and it was a dirty word. How does it factor in now that, that we're at the place we are in diversity? I think, I mean, it, first of all, we've got to start by saying this is... Don't think of this as a quota. This is, in fact, again, necessary for business success. Uh, I mean, think about what a diverse team can do in a multi-constituent world. I mean, if you go back to the question you asked me, uh, wow, what has surprised you? I sort of, what surprised me is, wow, we have, as a company, we have to serve many constituents uh, and their interests, their unmet, unarticulated needs. So every product group, every sales team, every marketing team will be better served by having diversity. And so to me, having representation reflect the world we want to serve is the best Thing that we can do for our long-term business. Uh, and so that's what you know, drives us. And even there, having some metrics on progress. Uh, for example, take women and women representation. Over the last 18 months, we've had a 50% increase in the number of uh, corporate vice presidents at Microsoft. Uh, that's fantastic. See, is it sufficient? Absolutely not. Uh, but is it a move in the right direction? I think so. Um, what are you reading now as we as we start to wrap up. I'm reading a book, oh God, I forget the, the thing, it's The Multiple Literacies of Leadership. Huh. Uh, it's a fascinating book um, uh, which sort of speaks in some sense to this intellectual pursuit now I have around saying uh, it's not just one stroke you can have. You've got to think about the complexity, the ambiguity that exists, the uncertainty that exists in the world. Uh, you need to be able to then turn that into understanding and clarity uh, and it's not, you can't be excellent in just one thing, uh, even as a leader uh, and the way you lead. Uh, somebody sort of said this very beautifully to me, which is, for example, clarity. I talk a lot about what leaders fundamentally do uh, is about cl bringing clarity. But it's about clarity of where you need to get to, but not be too dogmatic about the means. Uh, and being able to even have that distinction. So a lot, uh, I've lately gone back uh, to leadership. And another book that I recently led, which I loved, is which is just uh, something that I think about a lot, is Forged in Crisis. Um, and uh, that's a great book of uh, some people like, you know, um, Lincoln in particular, I mean, and how he came uh, through his two terms uh, to change history has been a real imprint on me. Finally, uh, Satya Nadella before work. What's, what's your routine? Is there something that you do before you're in the door, you're on, or maybe even, I mean, a lot of us start work really before we get to work, of course, but before, <laughs> before you even get into that mode, is there a certain preparation that you feel works for you? I think my ritual is, however short on time or sleep or whatever, I somehow figure out or manage to get my 30 minutes of a run. Uh, every day, wherever I am. Uh, and that, I must say, is perhaps what gives me all the energy and more. Keeps you trim, too. <laughs> I hope so. Yeah, the camera doesn't lie, it does. <laughs> Satya, thanks. Thank you so much, John. For Arrival's perspective on the cloud wars, check out my Fort Knox interview with Amazon Web Services CEO Andy Jassy. That's episode 55 from December 2nd, 2017. I'm John Ford from CNBC. This has been the Fort Knox Podcast, rich ideas and powerful people. Subscribe on Apple's podcast app or wherever fine podcasts are distributed. Check out the reviews on iTunes. Leave me one of your own. 
Also, subscribe to the Fort Knox channel on YouTube. That's F-O-R-T-T-K-N-O-X.com slash YouTube. Follow me, John Fort, on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. You'll see a video from some of these interviews, and you can say hi to me live, usually Wednesdays at 2 p.m. Eastern. There I tackle some of the most interesting business and economic issues with a little help from my friends at CNBC and from you. Just go to YouTube, search for Fort Knox, or go to Facebook or Twitter or LinkedIn and search for John Fort and follow me. Meanwhile, share this, tell a friend, drop me a note on Facebook, Twitter, YouTube, LinkedIn, or fortnox.com. And as always, thank you for lending an ear.